1: Today we're talking to Stephen H. Grant about his dual biography of Henry and Emily Folger, entitled Collecting Shakespeare. Stephen, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Mark. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
0: Okay, I was born in Boston and raised in New England. I went to Amherst College, and that's where I learned about Henry Folger, because he graduated 84 years before I did. I went into the Peace Corps, I was in the Foreign Service, And when I retired from the Foreign Service, I devoted myself exclusively to writing biography, and this is my second biography.
1: What was it that led you to make the Folgers the subject of your second biography? Was it that long-burning interest, or was it something that cropped up in a different context and you came back to it?
0: It was not long-burning. When I returned from serving abroad, I wanted to join cultural institutions in Washington, D.C., and the Folger Shakespeare Library was one of them. And after I joined, I took a curator's tour of the library, which is right across from the Library of Congress and two blocks from the U.S. Capitol. And the curator talked a lot about the founders, Henry and Emily Folger. And at the end of the tour, I asked whether there wasn't a biography of the Folgers in the gift shop that I could get. And the curator surprised me by looking down at the floor, shaking her head and saying, no one has written one yet.
1: <laughs> and so you decided to undertake the challenge?
0: Uh, I had to apply for the job because I just walked in off the street. I'm not a Shakespeare scholar. I consider myself a historian and a biographer. But I had to convince the people at the Folger, the administrators, that I was worthy enough to take on this task that no one before had done, and that took a while. They finally gave me the green light.
1: Why do you think it is that it's taken this long for someone to write a biography, The Folgers, because the lives you describe uh, are very fascinating in many respects.
0: It is a very reasonable question. One of the things about the Folgers was that they really stayed beneath the radar. They didn't want any publicity. They were afraid that if anyone got wind of the fact that they were putting together a huge collection of Shakespeare, all the prices would go up. And Folger was such a businessman and he established his reputation as one who could really get a good deal, that uh, people just didn't really think about the Folgers. And if you compare the Folger Library to the Huntington Library, the, the Huntington Library had three biographies written about Henry Huntington on the West Coast, two of them commissioned by the library. That just didn't happen with the Folger. So it was a different circumstance.
1: The background, of course, uh, between uh, the comparison between uh, Huntington and, and, and Folger is not just in terms of the, the very disparate treatment they've received uh, posthumously, but also the very different uh, backgrounds from which they came. I mean, the Huntington came from he, his he, his father was Collis Huntington. He was rich. Henry Folger, you described had a very different uh, background and, and wasn't one that wasn't quite as privileged.
0: That's absolutely true. Henry's father, Henry Clay Folger, Sr., was a businessman. And he, uh, Henry was the eldest son of this businessman father. And the father was very musical. And a lot of the music that uh, the father loved was passed on to the son who became an organist like like his father. It was also a family that was very close-knit. They were... About six children they were they lived frugally, they went through difficult times, such as the panic of eighteen seventy three uh, Henry grew up in Brooklyn, he excelled at public school number fifteen in Brooklyn. He went on to Adelphi Academy in Brooklyn, where he also excelled and in eighteen seventy five about five or six of his closest friends at Adelphi Academy accompanied him to Amherst College as freshmen. So that that's in a nutshell about his growing up and his family situation.
1: Now, when he was in college, was he an English major? Did he uh, study Shakespeare intently? What was his encounter uh, with the Bard as a young man?
0: There were no Shakespeare courses at Amherst. However, for American families born in the 1850s, like both Henry and Emily, often the home library consisted of two books, the Bible and Shakespeare. So Henry and Emily both grew up reading Shakespeare at home being able to recite lines. And it was only much later that they looked into it, especially Emily as a student. Uh, but more about Henry. He joined a Shakespeare reading club when he was at Amherst. He also wrote a, an essay about Shakespeare. And it was an essay for a competition, and Henry Folger lost. <laughs> and his wife, who had a great sense of humor, would tell people that he, she thought her husband went into Shakespeare collecting out of peak.
1: <laughs> it, it's funny how so many things in history seem to start that way, isn't it? Where it's not so much that they succeeded and continued, but that they didn't succeed and they made up for it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So you've been mentioning Emily Folger. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about her and how it was that she developed her interest and how it was that she uh, came and uh, came to meet and uh, marry Henry.
0: Emily was born in Ohio. Her father was a solicitor, and he ended up in Washington, D.C. at the Treasury because Emily's father campaigned for Abraham Lincoln in 1860. Emily had two older sisters. All three of them went to Vassar. So you can call these three sisters blue stocking intellectuals of the era. Emily was interested in theater. She was interested in astronomy. Vassar College had the third largest telescope in the country, mainly because of the professor of astronomy, who was Emily's favorite professor. Her name was Mariah Mitchell from Nantucket, who, ironically, was a cousin of Henry Folger. Really? Emily was elected president of her class of 36, and in those days, when you're elected president of your class, it's for life. She undertook a master's degree in 1896, the topic of which was the true text of Shakespeare. This was a year when only 250 women in the country received master's degrees. So she was really among an elite. And as a full partner, she helped her husband put the collection together. It is really she who defined the collection because Henry, as we'll see later, had a day job at Standard Oil, and Emily did not have a day job after she got married. She she did have a teaching career in Nassau Institute in Brooklyn, but she was coerced into dropping that job the day she got married, which was the way things worked back then.
1: As you mentioned in the book, their connection begins with literature. Yes. That they... Uh, they both,
0: they both took... Uh, A lot of courses in literature, they also had some foreign languages. They had Latin, they had Greek, they had French, they had German. Henry spent a lot of his time studying uh, rhetoric and public speaking. He was an excellent public speaker. They met at a literary salon in Brooklyn three years after they graduated from college Both graduated the same year in 1879.
1: So they meet in the salon and they quickly discover that that shared passion. And it struck me as I was reading your book that that really seems to be at the core of everything that follows. Not just the fact that any one of them had the passion, but the fact that they both shared it and that they were so Mutually supportive and complementary in terms of their passion and their quest to fill it.
0: That's absolutely accurate. One couldn't imagine a a better and more efficient collecting machine than Henry and Emily Folger. One, I also have to say that the Folgers had no children. So if if you have a lot of children or even one, then obviously the thoughts of what you do with your disposable income and how much time you have is pretty much determined by your family. So they did not have children. They were entirely devoted to each other. And they both loved the Bard. And I call that the, the greatest literary ménage à trois in history. <laughs> Henry, Emily, and Will.
1: I wonder how their partnership played a role in another respect, because you describe how they really tried to be very low profile. They tried to be very uh, circumspect, very, uh, you know, very under the radar. And when you uh, describe, uh, you contrast that with uh, some other collectors who would have agents out there. And it it seems that one of the things that really made their low profile, uh, the Folgers low profile possible is the fact that they provided so much mutual support for each other that they didn't need to have a whole group of other people out there doing so much of the work for them.
0: It is absolutely true that the Folgers did not have a staff. Henry Huntington in the Saint, San Gabriel Mountains, in, outside of Los Angeles, had a huge staff in his library. And Henry and Emily really did everything themselves, with the exception of Henry's private secretary at Standard Oil, who back in those days did not see any conflict in taking care of some of his boss's avocation as well as his vocation. So Henry's private secretary typed up all of the bid lists, for instance, Going from Henry to the 600 booksellers that he corresponded with, including 150 in London alone.
1: Wow. You've been mentioning Standard Oil, and as you describe in the book, that's a huge part of the Folger story. I was wondering if you could speak a bit as to how it was that Henry Folger came to be employed by Standard Oil and what. Uh, role he played within what was, at that time, one of the largest corporations in America.
0: It was very fortuitous for Henry that one of the classmates at Adelphi Academy, whose name was Charles Pratt, had a father who worked at Standard Oil. And this father is someone who was a refiner himself. Charles Pratt Sr. in 1869 was the largest oil refiner in the country and he was bought out by John D. Rockefeller. So you have Henry Folger and Charles Pratt who are roommates for four years at Amherst College and one week after graduation, both of them have started working for Standard Oil in New York. It was at 26 Broadway most of the time that they worked there, and they both became senior executives. So who knows what the story would have been in terms of Shakespeare or in terms of the employment that Henry ended up doing. He, he was thinking of continuing on in education, perhaps teaching. He was an excellent mathematician. That field interested him. But a lot of the people who came into Standard Oil came in on the uh, apron strings, one can say, of someone else in the family or uh, related to that person. And uh, that explains pretty much how Henry ended up in Standard Oil, but the fact that he served probably more years than anyone else. He worked at Standard Oil for 49 years. He had no other employment. Then he retired.
1: And as you mention in the book, uh, you or as you detail in the book, really, the employment of Standard Oil really is the key to his ability to build up this collection. And it's not just a matter of that Standard Oil paid him to do a job. As you describe, it the various paths that Standard Oil took as a corporation uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries uh, are at the heart of how Henry Folger accumulated the fortune that made his collection possible.
0: Henry started as a statistical clerk. He later became head of the manufacturing division, which means head of the refineries. He was appointed director of standard oil he later became president of standard oil of new york which was called socony at the time and then chairman of the board of standard oil of new york and standard oil of new york later became mobil oil so when you look at exxon mobil today you can go back and look at the folger years and folger was a director of what became Exxon, which was Standard Oil of New Jersey. He was chairman of the board of Standard Oil of New York. So he was in a position to have not only uh, a very decent salary, but also he followed the example of John D. Rockefeller Sr., his boss, in investing as much as he could in the different uh, oil companies. In, in 1911, the Supreme Court uh, divided up Standard Oil into 34 companies because it had determined that the, the monopolistic practices of Standard Oil were uh, had had to be uh, changed. And the best way the court thought of doing this was to split it up into that many companies. The company headquarters still remained at 26 Broadway in New York City. And Folger still became very wealthy by staying with the companies, whether it was divided up into 34 or whether it was just one company. It gave him nowhere near... the the financial level that his boss, John D. Rockefeller, had. So if you looked at the major stockholders of Standard Oil, Henry Folger's name would not appear because he was not one of the main ones. That's another way where he stayed beneath the radar.
1: And as you describe, though he was very prosperous, though he was wealthy, he and Emily both lived a relatively frugal life for uh, a couple of their uh, class and, and, and his position in in Gilded Age and, and, and uh, early twentieth century society.
0: They did. They they had one brownstone in Brooklyn that they rented. They rented their furniture. There was a an article in the newspaper about Henry Folger, who during the winter would come down to see whether it was cold enough so he wouldn't have to buy any ice, but he could get some that was just uh, fabricated in front of his house. <laughs> so he, he had the reputation of, of being someone who was extremely frugal. Uh, they loved culture, so they spent a lot of time going to the theater, going to the opera, They splurged on a car from time to time. They they owned a Pierce Arrow whereas early on they would be using a horse and buggy but they certainly had the reputation of being very frugal. They did not have a secondary home. They did not own a string of race horses. They didn't have a private railroad car. Uh, Huntington comes out as someone who had most of those uh, accessories plus a 400-acre property outside of Versailles that he rented for his summers.
1: You mentioned how they spent the money on cultural pursuits, and that's one of the things that I noticed when I was reading the book that you make reference to in the earlier chapters is the degree to which they not just spent the money, but also sometimes you know, made the commitment and even perhaps went out of their way from time to time to go attend plays, especially, of course, Shakespearean performances. As you described, they, they, you know, saw, you know, hundreds of them uh, and, and, and seemed to be, uh, you know, it, it seemed to be almost like, like a magnetic draw for them to have to, to see a Shakespearean play being performed and they had to go see it.
0: Performance was very important for both of them. Emily kept a play diary, which is an amazing work, and she records the 129 Shakespeare plays that they saw between 1906 and 1930. And she, in detail, not only talks about what was the name of the play, who were the actors, she will give her opinion about whether the actors captured the spirit of the play. What was the, dec- the decor like? Was there music? Did they make any cuts in the play? Or was it unabridged? And as we all know, you can go to an unabridged Shakespeare play and stay in the theater for three or four hours. And it's very rare to have unabridged plays these days. But for, for Emily, it was sacrilegious not to respect Shakespeare and perform the whole play. So, yes, performance was very important. They not only saw plays in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, they took 11 trips to England on slow cattle steamers. And they would go to London to see Shakespeare. They would go to Stratford-upon-Avon. The play that Henry liked to read the best when he was, Traveling on these steamers was The Tempest.
1: <laughs> Although that was not his favorite play, as you write. Uh, that's true. Lear was his favorite. What was Emily's favorite?
0: We don't know. Hmm. Can't answer that. But one of the things that the Folgers did whenever they saw a performance that they liked, and sometimes when they didn't like it, they would enter into correspondence with the actors. Uh, Emily, in particular, would ask the heroines why they got interested in Shakespeare in the first place. And Henry wanted to build up his collection. So at the same time that Emily was trying to engage conversation with the Shakespearean uh, heroines, Henry was trying to purchase their gown. And if you look at the book cover of Collecting Shakespeare, Emily is wearing a purple velvet with white lace gown worn by Julia Marlowe, the Shakespearean actress, when she was playing Portia.
1: We've been talking a bit about the... Folger fortune and how that really is so critical to what the Folgers were able to do in terms of building up this very amazing collection. But as you describe in the book, it wasn't as though Henry was saving money and spending it. As you describe, he was engaged in quite a bit of financial shifting. And and I was really surprised to read how much money he borrowed to make all of his purchases and acquisitions possible.
0: One of the most fortunate things for a biographer is to come across a subject who saved everything. <laughs> and the financial trail is is very clear with Folger because he saved all his checks. He saved 10,000 of them. Back in those days, there wasn't a stub, so it doesn't say here's what I p- paid for it with this. So it's a it's a global amount of money usually. He also saved all of his uh, invoices from banks. He dealt with nine financial institutions, and he and all the bank statements. And every time he borrowed money, how much did he borrow at what interest rate? When did he pay back? And there's often correspondence between Henry and John D. Rockefeller because in addition to borrowing from trust companies and banks, Henry would borrow from John D. Rockefeller and Rockefeller would always apply the interest rate of the day, which back then was about 6%. And uh, I think that Rockefeller might have someday wondered how much company time Henry was uh, spending on his avocation, but he was such a trusted member of the uh, senior administration at Standard Oil. Henry had been to law school. He had a degree from Columbia, and he was not in the law department, not in the legal department of Standard Oil, but Rockefeller would use him to bounce ideas off to give a different point of view often from from the lawyers.
1: So, and I was thinking that his financial acumen and his ability to command all that money gave him an edge because as you describe in more than one instance, the difference between uh, Henry Folger acquiring something and another collector getting it is the fact that Henry was basically able to give them cash in hand.
0: That is absolutely right. So Henry... Uh, with these 600 booksellers and 150 in London, would always insist on paying cash. But the quid pro quo with the bookseller was that Henry said, I'm going to pay cash, and for this, you're going to give me a 10% discount. <laughs> and, and he was the biggest game in town, so they all, all went along with that. He also insisted on inspecting every single item that he bid on. And that meant a lot of back and forth, because he was very picky. And he would go back and say, you said that this was a a genuine title page of a second folio, but I can tell that it's a facsimile. So either I'll send it back, or you're going to give me a better price on it. It's a fascinating correspondence to look look at.
1: Is there a sense uh, that he in every instance was undertaking a sincere uh, evaluation or was there, did you sometimes get a a, a feeling that he was perhaps maybe bluffing just so he can try to knock the price down a bit?
0: No, I don't think bluffing was, was in his comportment. Really? He, he, he knew what he wanted. He and Emily uh, kept a card catalog. It was really Emily who kept it and they, divided into three or four categories all the books that they didn't have one was i need it right now second was yes we really should get it three was have one but are looking for a better copy and i think the fourth one would have been uh we don't need it it's not a priority and that was another big question about the definition of of what they collected, so I, I mentioned that Emily was really responsible for the definition of the of the uh, collection because she would go through the catalogs and when I took on this job of writing the biography, the first biography of the Folgers, I took my tape measure into the underground vault at the Folger and measured what the. Archive was that I was going to have to dig into and make sense out of, and it was 424 linear feet. Wow! So, so that's a, a well, that's what a football field and a third. <laughs> but then, when you break it down, out of the 424 linear feet, 358 linear feet were auction catalogs. Because back then, they were they were so thick, they could be a thousand pages. Emily would get these catalogs that her husband had brought home from Standard Oil because that was the address that was used. And she would go through the catalogs, look for books mainly between 1475 and 1715, mainly having to do with Shakespeare, but not entirely. And she would turn... Over the corner of of the page and against the item, she would put question mark as though when Henry came back from Standard Oil, she would say, Henry, don't we need this one for our collection? And then Henry would stay up half the night putting together a bid list, had his secretary type it up, he signed it, and it went off to London.
1: Hmm. We've been speaking a lot about the acquisition of the collection. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the collection itself. As you just referenced, that they, generally speaking, were looking in a certain chronological range, uh, going from the late 15th uh, to the early uh, uh, 17th centuries. I was wondering if you could talk a bit... uh, Oh, 18th century, excuse me. I was wondering if you could speak a bit more as to... uh, what particular uh, items or categories uh, were they uh, looking for, and, and how their focus changed as they acquired certain items and basically uh, and, and, and uh, you know satisfied certain needs? Yeah, the
0: Folger Library is known especially for its collection of what's called the First Folio, the First Shakespeare Folio. It's a compilation. Of 36 Shakespeare plays that was published in London in 1623, seven years after Shakespeare died. There was no assumption that Shakespeare was interested in having his plays printed. For him, performance was everything. And there were about a thousand copies. Of this large book it's about 10 inches by 13 almost a thousand pages about a thousand copies were printed in 1623 and maybe a quarter of those exist today I think it's exactly let's say 239 or, or 240 and and those copies are known to exist in either Public or private collections, but by far the Folger, Folger has the largest. They have eighty two different first folios they're different in several ways they're different in terms of their typography when the, this was handset type, of course, in the seventeenth century, and if a letter like an H got worn out. They might throw that out and put an R in rather than an H. And readers would say, hey, what's this? And then they would start correcting and so forth. But there was also the habit of a lot of readers to to write in the margins or at the end of a play when there was half a page. So there's a lot of fascinating what are called marginalia in Shakespeare that some collectors like Huntington and JP Morgan had no interest in collecting. They wanted the pristine copy with no marks in it. Folger, au contraire, loved it when there were lots of marks in it. So, that's the that's the one volume w- which the Folgers really went obsessed and berserk on. And the the fact that I came along to write this biography at the time when The biography came out in 2014, which was the 450th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth. So there were a lot of Shakespeare events going on. And 2016 was the 400th anniversary of his death when the Folger Library, through funding from the National Endowment of Humanities, sent to every single state and to Puerto Rico, and Washington, D.C., an original first folio under heavy security, but allowing hundreds of thousands of people all over the country to look at this volume, which is has, has such a reputation among book collectors and printers and booksellers, that it was just a huge thing for the library to do, and all copies have been safely returned now. So the collection that the Folgers put together is mainly a literary collection, but they also collected things such as furniture, especially furniture that might have been around in Shakespeare's time, or might even have been in one of Shakespeare's homes. They... Collected oil paintings, over 200 of them, often having to do with Shakespeare. There are a lot of maps. There are a lot of engravings. There are 250,000 playbills. So I could go on and on with what the collection has, but you also asked about how the collection evolved over time. If you look at the readers, the researchers that come to the Folger today, Probably no more than a third of them look at the collection, especially because of their strength in Shakespeare. There are people that are looking at it from a theological point of view, since the collection expanded a lot from literature to theology, to medicine, to botany, to armor, to music. As I mentioned, musical, he collected musical scores. He collected ancient instruments, and in order to have those instruments tuned, well, they went right across the street to the Library of Congress that has a lot of oh, ancient instruments also. So it's a large collection. Today, there are probably 275,000 books, whereas the Folgers in 1930 left 92,000 books. The Folgers also left an endowment to hire staff and to expand the collection. So they have been able to expand the collection.
1: It's one of the reasons why I thought that the, I, the name Folger Shakespeare Library is something of, of misnomer in a way, because it's really about Shakespeare and his times and the Shakespearean legacy. As you describe they, today, the collection has uh, items going up through the 20th century about Shakespeare and uh, and, and his impact upon uh, civilization.
0: The term that's used today for the era that the Folgers collected was is called early modern. Uh, so that was pretty much the the dates that I mentioned before of 1475 to 1715. Uh, so we're talking about really after the middle ages, you're talking about the Renaissance, talking about the the Tudor period, the Jacobean period.
1: So did Henry and Emily, uh, have distinct roles they played apart from just say, uh, Henry's, uh, you know, monetary acumen and uh, Emily's perusal of catalogs and and cataloging of their collection, or was it more of a cooperative process in terms of the decision whether to acquire certain volumes or or how to uh, organize them?
0: We have to do a certain amount of surmising because outside of the play diary that Emily kept for those years, neither kept a diary. They didn't have children... Around who might have heard or inherited certain documents or been exposed to what the conversation was between them. But they both, in their way, became Shakespeare scholars. Henry, because of his intense collection and spending time, especially in the early years, reading the plays, pondering them. And together they wrote seven or eight volumes of, of what are called commonplace books. It's not so much that they wrote them, but they collected sayings that had been, uh, written over the years about Shakespeare. And they, they, they studied them. Emily's, uh, being able to be called a scholar is different because she had a master's degree in Shakespeare studies from Vassar. As I mentioned, Henry, Henry's was in law. But you can imagine this being one of the, the most constant subjects of conversation between them. And Henry made very few business trips. So they were, that's another reason why there's no. no correspondence virtually between them, because he was, he was always at home. They were together on, on vacation. They, um, they didn't have many family vi- visitors. The reason was their unilateral devotion to collecting Shakespeare. In fact, they limited family visits to twice a year, Thanksgiving and New Year's. And some of the children who went to these repasts and opportunities to, to, to read and to recite are still alive today. They're octogenarians, and I met about half a dozen of them, and they have memories of going to the Folgers' home. Their vacation home was in Glen Cove, Long Island, and as many as twenty-five people would be around a long table, and after the meal, the children of, uh, let's say, pre-preteens would be expected to recite or to read a poem. Whereupon Emily would give the child a book and a five-dollar bill,
1: <laughs> which was a substantial amount of money for the time. It was. What did they do with all these books? Did they keep them in their brownstone, or did they have to arrange storage for this massive collection that they were building up?
0: The, the grandnieces remember when they would visit, they would go from one floor to the other, opening doors, looking inside. When they came down, they said, the only thing we saw was books, 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 books. <laughs> so the four stories were chock full of books, but anything that had any value was not in their home. They're always worried about fire. So they, they had uh, warehouses where they would store their goods. They would also use bank vaults. And at Standard Oil Company, there was a huge vault where Henry had some of his most valuable items, and they kept a record of what was in what storage facility, but it was too complicated often to go and retrieve anything, which scholars in the U.S. and in England and elsewhere found something that they could really criticize Henry for, that they called him a hoarder and they wanted to write on a certain quarto that came out in 1602 and Henry might have the only one or one of two. And he said, I'm very sorry. I hope someday to be able to make my collection available to scholars. But for the moment, uh, it's not a, i'm not able to access the collection i'm still collecting and he had a bad reputation among scholars
1: you mentioned how uh he would sometimes receive surveys to try to assess how many first folios he had and he would simply never respond
0: he he never he never did And that was a huge frustration for a lot of people. And it was amazing after he died and it became clear what the collection did have that it was just so strong. Uh, Something else that Henry had decided with Emily and they hadn't told anybody is where, where they would build their repository and who would administer the repository they decided that they would build it in Washington D.C. but after having considered many other locations one of them was Nantucket can you imagine getting on the ferry to go to the Folger Shakespeare Library on Nantucket (laughs) Nantucket because that's where the Folger's have been living for 300 years. The first Folgers settled on Nantucket Island. Today, there are five Folger families there. But that really didn't make any sense. The location that wanted the collection more than anyone else, as you might imagine, was Stratford-upon-Avon, where all of the books really came from. And Henry resisted all of the pleas to return to England the great collection and the reason he did it was he said, I am an American. Uh, He also decided that Brooklyn or New York was going to be too expensive and he decided on Washington. Uh, One of his classmates at Amherst said, there's no reason why Washington, D.C. should be known only as a political capital. We want this to be a cultural capital, too. So that was always an interesting question of uh, where the library would be uh, selected. And then the the other similar idea was that once it was selected and built, who was going to administer the Folger? And the library was something that Henry Folger did not want to be public. He was very wary of leaving all of his life's work in a collection to political whims. And it was only after he died in 1930, which was two years before the library opened, that people learned that he had asked the trustees of Amherst College to administer the Folger Library. And it was amazing for a, a liberal arts college in Massachusetts to be asked to administer a private research library 400 miles away. And the trustees had to say, well, do we want to take this on? And the will said, If Amherst does not acquiesce to being the administrators, then uh, University. Let's see, University of Chicago, and then another possibility was that the Library of Congress, but that would have been the government, and Henry didn't want that to happen, and the financial committee of. Amherst College looked at Henry's finances after he died in 1930. Well, guess what? The Depression had decreased the value of his financial holdings by one half. And this was when Emily came in, and she said, Well, I can, I can add to my, my late husband's uh, estate... With my own finances, and she gave three, $3 million, which allowed the $10 million endowment to uh, take effect. But those were times when it was very unclear, after Henry died, whether Emily would soldier on alone.
1: And yet, as you make clear in your book, it really is the point at which we really do see how complementary and cooperative their enterprise was because she really, for the last six years of her life, uh, uh, she really does take the lead and realize so many of the dreams that they had for their collection.
0: She did. Uh, One of the things that she had to learn how to do was to make decisions on her own, because she was always part of the decision-making, but not really the main decision-maker. She relied heavily on the Librarian of Congress, Herbert Putnam. The two of them got along very well. Uh, Emily found herself involved in hiring staff and also choosing what uh, areas the library should continue to purchase materials in she even got involved in the very minor role of buying pistols and ammunition for the Folgers security guards <laughs> because in the early days there was a shooting range in the basement of the Folger long since gone
1: I imagine they needed the space for so many of these other acquisitions that they continue to accumulate
0: that's right and <laughs> in in 1980 the Folger doubled the size of its reading room for researchers.
1: Well, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, I was wondering, uh, Stephen, if you could tell us what you're working on now.
0: Well, I, I am doing things which I describe with the four letters of the word bait, B-A-I-T. So the B is blogging. I'm a guest blogger on my publisher's website, Johns Hopkins University Press. I blog also regularly on a website in Stratford-upon-Avon called bloggingshakespeare.com. The A is articles. I'm still writing articles. The last article was published in the Martha's Vineyard historic journal and it was about Benjamin Franklin's grandfather whose name just happens to be Folger Peter Folger Peter Folger's daughter married Benjamin Franklin's father so I'm still staying with the Folgers so that's the B and that's the A the I is interviews such as this one with you today Mark <laughs> And the T is talks. So far, I've given 70 Folger talks. And certainly the fact that the first folio was going around the country allowed me to be present at some of those events. And I'm putting together a book tour for the UK in October of this year. So that's it for me. B-A-I-T, rather than another book.
1: Well, I hope that your book tour is a big success, and I want to thank you for taking some time uh, out of your day today to uh, speak to us.
0: Thank you, Mark.
1: Thank you.